Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. This podcast, we're going to have Sean White and Bill Brooks talk about energy storage systems and the National Electrical Code. So, some of the things that we're going to cover include the energy storage systems, that's the ESS codes, including the National Electrical Code, the International Fire Code, the International Building Code, the International Residential Code, and the International Electrotechnical Commission. And if you're looking for abbreviations, we could say NEC, IFC, IBC, IRC, and IEC. Another thing, too, is oftentimes I see people say the National Electric Code. In fact, I used to do that, too, until you read it carefully. And instead of the National Electric Code, it's the National Electrical Code. So make sure to say electrical instead of electric if you don't want to get busted. Another thing, make sure to get Sean and Bill's latest book, which is the third edition of PV and the NEC, and that would be based on the 2023 National Electrical Code. However, this podcast was actually recorded in 2021. And if you want to find out where to get different versions of the National Electrical Code, including the 2023 NEC, or one of the other building codes like the IRC, IBC, IFC, etc., things that have been adopted by AHJs, you can go to SolarShawn, that's SolarSean.com, and we have lots of links there, including links to all of these adopted codes. Because if a code is adopted, it is the law, and the law is not something that you should have to pay for, or else you would have this great excuse of why you didn't follow the law. You could just say, oh, I couldn't afford it. And, by the way, you can get free access to these codes at the NFPA website and other places. Check out these other places too, solarshawn.com. So let's get on that high dive and dive into those codes. And how about let's start with a double, triple, whammy, backflip, cannonball, belly flop. Sound good? Okay, dive into the codes. The 2020 NEC with the sun on the cover, that's for solar. The 2017 NEC, who said some PV on the cover of that one. And the 1984 NEC, And that was before Bill was on code making panel four, but that was the first NEC that had solar in it. Article 690 was there. And the 1897 NEC. And so of course they didn't have solar on that one. And then also we wrote a book, PV in the NEC. And so pretty much what we try to do here is make it so regular people can understand it by this book. And of course that one has solar on the cover, right? (laughs) You can get the NEC online. The 2020 NEC is disappointing because you can't get the PDF version of it. And so always you could before, and it was just really easy to navigate. Now, every time I have to like log on like 10 times a day and enter a password. And that's for the paid version, just kind of a pain. Bill, you said you heard some rumor that they might do something different or? Oh, they're talking about doing some different things, but I don't think they'll ever go back to PDFs, unfortunately. So they get asked that all the time. Darn them. Yep. So it's conspiracy, I think. Yep. And so if you want the 2017 NEC, just do a search for Tool Texas NEC and it's a great PDF copy. Maybe that's why NFPA doesn't like to give it out in a PDF copy because then Texas passes it out to everyone. So just because say for instance, 706 applies to energy storage systems doesn't mean we don't apply the rest of the code. If 706 disagrees with the rest of the code, then you go with 706 because it supplements or modifies that. NFPA 855, 
And this is a standard for stationary energy storage systems. It's not adopted by any state. It's a brand new standard. When would you say people would be using this, Bill? 855 can be adopted by municipalities and things like that and fire services. But it's mainly, I guess the most important part about 855 is that it's used a lot informing and helping to write the building codes and so there is a section in 855 on one and two family dwellings and some of that language has made it into the residential code we actually had to modify it and improve it and because 855 has just gone through its first edition now in its second edition it's used a lot for the building code so that's where we see it officially adopted but a municipality or a fire service could require certain projects to follow 855 to the letter. I just don't see that happening a lot. It's more finding its way into the codes. So they're just kind of using this as like a template or like a document to write other codes with? Yeah, and so. that's because the I codes, the International Building Code, International Fire Code, and International Residential Code are documents that are universally applied throughout the United States. That's a pretty big battle to fight. The better way to do it is just to simply get language from these standards into those codes. Okay, so that kind of reminds me of the IEC, which is the International Electrotechnical Commission, and it's kind of evolved out of like a European standard but they don't really use it to design systems, but they use it to write codes. And it even talks about how in the front of the NEC, if you read it, it says that they try to go by the philosophy of the IEC or something like that. A bunch of different uses for energy storage. So what's your favorite, Bill? There's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> wow, I don't know. I think my car. Uh -huh. My favorite use of energy storage is electric vehicles, propulsion. But I like backup power. When the power goes out, not having to start a generator, that's a fun one. And then there's all kinds of great lists of many, many different reasons. I've heard that being called self-consumption a lot. Yeah, self-consumption is a way of considering that. But zero export means that you can't export anything. And then we'll have other utilities and even Hawaii, there are exceptions where you're allowed to export a certain amount of electricity. So you may have a limited export situation where you're self-consuming most of it and then during specific times when the grid needs it possibly you can export a certain amount of your power usually it's from solar though in that case and you've got your batteries topped off or you don't need to add any more to your batteries at that point yeah and there's a lot of these other reasons for having energy storage are very important too such as like frequency regulation and voltage regulation power factor, spinning reserves, all that kind of stuff. And I think the biggest system in the world, somewhere around 100 megawatt hours over in Australia, and I think they're just mainly using it for frequency regulation around wind turbines. I think in a year it paid for itself, some crazy number like that. What a DC coupled system is. And so a DC coupled system is something, I always like to look at it this way, if it's DC coupled, you could charge your batteries without converting it to AC. So you're going from DC PV all the way to DC battery and then back out, you know, when you want to send something to the grid. And that sounds great because you don't have the losses. And another thing, too, that you can do with DC coupled is that you can reduce your inverter size, perhaps. So instead of clipping 
where you would be like curtailing power, which means you're like putting out less than you could if you just had a PV array that was kind of sized big compared to your inverter. And it's a really sunny day. You might not be putting out as much as you could, but if you had a battery, maybe you could get an inverter that's half the size, you know, that energy seep out of that inverter later in the day at a lot slower rate. So all that stuff sounds really good until you figure that if you're DC coupling, you need to have all your equipment kind of designed to work together. And so it would be more difficult than as where if you had an AC coupled system and then the AC coupled system, it just talks 60 Hertz and it talks at, you know, whatever these regular grid voltages and things like that. So it's a lot easier to replace things and it's not going to be obsolete equipment in 20 years when something breaks. Yeah, and some examples of AC coupled is many people have seen or heard of the Tesla Powerwall. That's an AC coupled system. Enphase system is an AC coupled system. And DC coupled systems, examples would be Solar Edge system with the LG Chem battery, a Generac system. There's quite a few systems out there. And DC or AC coupling, you know, there's pros and cons to each. Either one works well. Internally, an AC coupled unit like the Powerwall or the Enphase system obviously have a DC battery in them. Basically, it's an inverter that's packaged with the battery, not unlike if you've seen AC modules for PV where the microinverter is incorporated into the module. So a similar concept. Yeah. yeah, I like how sometimes they call it an AC battery and somebody's out there thinking like, Wow, a battery can be AC, but it's just an inverter and a DC battery. Yep. So Bill's got some, what, an Outback inverter on his wall. So I guess that's DC coupled, but it could be yep. AC coupled too. Maybe Right. So the Outback Skybox has a DC coupled battery at 48 volts and then is able to AC couple microinverters and other types of inverters on the AC side as well. And we call that a multi-mode inverter. So if you had a power wall, the battery and the inverter is just in the same box. You know? That's right. And so that just AC couple system. Sunny Island, and I've got a couple Sunny Islands running on my house. I've got a couple of Sunny Boys running on my house. So I have that system as well. So there's about 10 or 12 systems that are on the market today that are actively being sold. And I've got maybe four or five of them. He's got lots of extra electricity. So my car's charging here. So we got a little energy storage going on with a Tesla. An automatic transfer switch. If you call it an automatic transfer switch, then you might have to back up all of your loads because then what is that, 702 that you go to? That yeah, I mean, right now transfer switches are generally covered in Article 702 and these types of systems are not strictly optional standby systems. We're using Article 705 because we're mixing circuits together and we're using Article 710 for a standalone. So we have a standalone mode or it's now called island mode in the 2020 code. And the microgrid interconnect device is really an isolation switch. That's a better way to say it, rather than just a transfer switch, because you're not transferring from one power to another. You're isolating the utility. And when you isolate the utility, you signal the inverters that you are now in microgrid mode. And so now the multi-mode inverter changes to microgrid mode and has to take over the voltage source characteristics of that microgrid and then you can still have interactive inverters feeding power into that microgrid but the multi-mode inverter basically keeps everything going and regulates the AC voltage and frequency. 
Yeah, but if you had to do Article 702, you'd have to back up all your loads. So you don't want to use that one. Yeah, yeah there's some bad language in Article 702 about automatic transfer. And that if you have automatic transfer, you have to either implement load control, which a lot of people are starting to do now. Or you'd have to carry the full load. And the carrying the full load is generally something that's not acceptable in most microgrid setups because just too much power to back up the entire house load might be 20 kilowatts. Yeah. Yeah. And I shouldn't say back up all your loads, but the calculated load. Right. AC coupling, AC coupling. And that's mostly what we see with utility scale systems, AC coupled systems. What they do with DC coupled is they're taking a PV inverter and then they're taking an energy storage system with a DC to DC converter and they're coupling it over there on the DC side. So they're kind of tricky there. Reverse DC coupled. So they take an energy storage utility scale inverter and then they're using a PV with a DC to DC converter. Have you seen that one? It depends on which voltage you want to go to. I mean, mm -hmm. energy storage will typically have a specific voltage that it needs to operate at depending on the design and how many cells are in series. And the same thing with PV. Your PV is going to have a certain voltage based on the number of solar cells in series. And they both have voltage variations. So energy storage changes its voltage based on its state of charge, whereas PV changes its voltage based on its temperature. As it gets hotter, the voltage goes down. As it gets cooler, the voltage goes up. And those things are just not compatible with each other. If you have storage doing one thing and PV doing another thing, somebody's got to give in the process. And so there's got to be a single voltage. And so typically what we have in an inverter is what we call a bus voltage. So at 240 volt split phase for a house, we have a 400 volt bus voltage. And that we basically make everybody sing to that 400 volt bus voltage. So we might take PV and up convert it. If we're running it at 300 volts, we'll up convert it to 400 volts. If we've got a battery, we could run it as low as 48 volts and up convert it to 400 volts, or we could even have a 400 volt battery and just a minor amount of conversion. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it. At the end of the day, the AC voltage is much more constant. Now on the islands, the AC voltage may fluctuate a little bit more than it does other places, but in general, your AC voltage is pretty constant, plus or minus 5%, something like that. And that's a smaller variation than the variations we get in both PV and energy storage. And that's why we need DC converters to kind of make everybody go operate at the same voltage for the inverter. Yeah, what I thought was interesting about this, and this is just one company's explanation, is they said that the PV inverters are typically unidirectional. So if they want to get bidirectional, they'll get a storage inverter, and then they can take the energy from the grid back and charge the battery. So that would be one excuse for doing it this way with reverse DC coupled. A hybrid inverter, you're just plugging your PV and your energy storage into the same inverter. So they call that a hybrid inverter. However, that's not an NEC term used in the right context because the NEC calls hybrid something that uses some other energy source, not including batteries or energy storage and not including the grid. Uh, and this is including a uh, battery in the hybrid definition. It's sort of like a term that people use on the trade show floors and everywhere else. Just sort of like when you say solar panel, we have to correct people and say solar module until the 2020 NEC, we got rid of solar 
panel altogether. So there now there is no such thing as a solar panel. Okay. Yeah, and hybrid is going to go away in the 2023 code. So uh, these are just kind of terms that are not exact terms that are used all over the place. And you have to ask a lot of questions when you hear somebody say hybrid. Here's some energy storage relevant articles, and we're going to go a little bit through 480 and tell you why that it's better to use 706. And then we're going to talk about 710 standalone systems, 712 direct current microgrids, and then the rest of the NECs, including 705, 690, 310, and 250, and all these different things. So 480 is storage batteries, 706 is energy storage systems, and it gets a little bit confusing there. And the 2014 NEC and earlier, we used 480 and 690 for energy storage systems. In fact, there was more battery stuff in 690 PV systems than there was in 480 storage batteries. And 480 storage batteries just goes way back to, I think, before AC was popular. <laughs> Edison. Yeah. yeah, the only thing we used in 480 when we were doing PV systems was the fact that it said that if you required ventilation, if you had a flooded lead-acid battery, then you were required to provide ventilation. Other than that, 690 had everything you needed to know about an energy storage system or a battery uh, storage system. And so then when it came time to write Article 706, and I was involved in the development of Article 706, we were merging these two articles. We took the whole section of 690 and copied it into the new Article 706. And then we took pieces and parts and we were supposed to get rid of Article 480, but there were some powers that didn't like the idea of having an Article 706 and want to maintain Article 480 and keep Thomas Edison's memory alive. No, that wasn't really why. They were lead acid companies that didn't want to be beholden to Article 706. And so they kept Article 480 for now. And that's in your code. And it will be in your code probably the next couple of code cycles. We'll see where it goes. In, in the 2023 code, Article 480 is being relegated to only lead acid and nickel cadmium compound inverter battery systems and all other systems and all UL9540 systems will be called energy storage and use Article 706. 69071, an energy storage system connected to PV shall be installed in accordance with 706. So that pretty much tells you not to use 480 right there. And 706 also applies to systems greater than one kilowatt hour. The energy storage system definition, one or more components assembled together capable of storing energy and providing electrical energy into premises wiring system or an electric power production and distribution network. So it's got to supply a house or the grid. And an energy storage system also can be a battery and an inverter is usually what it's going to be. I mean, who has a DC house? Huh? Not too many. Sometimes we can look in the handbook for commentary, and you just want to remember that the commentary in the handbook is just somebody's opinion, right? You know who writes the commentary? It's like different people, different it's times. staff right now of the NEC, so Derek Vigstall is the one who mm -hmm. does most of 690, 706. Super good guy. Yeah, their opinions are really good opinions, and so it's helpful. It's always nice to look at what they have to say. I can't say that anything I read in the handbook is wrong or, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that. So I think it's just helpful to get a different perspective, a little more background sometimes, especially in areas of the code where it's fairly new and there's a lot of reason for need for interpretation because the language, quite frankly, in Article 706, there's a lot of changes over the last two code cycles. In Article 706, to try to clean the language up, to make it clearer, it's important to have additional perspectives.
they're saying if it's certified with to UL 9540, then you would use 706. And if it's not, then perhaps you would use 480. UL 9540 is an umbrella standard that requires you to have UL 1973, which is a battery standard, as part of the process. You must have a UL 1973 battery in order to pass UL 9540. So one way to think about it is that the way the code is written today, you could have a UL 1973 system battery that could use Article 480, but in most cases that UL 1973 battery, like the LG Chem would be an example of that, is being utilized. I've never seen an LG Chem battery used in anything but an energy storage system, typically with SolarEdge inverter or similar type of an inverter. So just little definitions of like nominal voltage. We're talking about batteries and cells. So the nominal voltage for a lead acid battery is two volts per cell. That's why your car has six cells in it. And then we don't need to worry too much about alkali systems because we don't see those anymore for the most part. Or flashlights. Yeah, for flashlights or I don't know. <laughs> this is wrong. And I think actually we were having a meeting coming up with proposals last year and I was pointing out that lithium iron phosphate is also a different type of lithium ion battery, which is 3.2. So I think you guys said you were going to take it out, is it? Yeah, I think they're taking out some of that specificity. I mean, yeah, the nominal voltage of any compound or chemistry will be slightly different. Each chemistry has a different voltage. Nickel cadmium is different than lead acid. Any one of a dozen lithium ion technologies. Now there's probably two major lithium ion technologies that are being used today, but there's gonna be plenty more over the next decade or so. Yeah, so typically they talk about like the cobalt type of lithium ion, which is about, usually I see 3.6, like where they're using for these energy storage systems. That's what and most then, of your electric vehicles are. But if you're doing the lithium iron phosphate, or they call it LIFEPO or one of those things, because iron is starts with F on the chemistry table, the periodic table, then it's 3.2 volts per cell. So that's one reason why they're using these ones that have cobalt in them for the you know cars and things like that. And it's actually mostly not cobalt, it's mostly nickel. So it's kind of funny, like we're driving around all these electric vehicles and we're calling them lithium ion batteries. We should call them nickel batteries. It's got more nickel than anything else. They say that if you bought a million dollars worth of nickels, melted them down and then sold the metal, you'd have $2 million worth of after that. So that's Very cool. Yeah. Sounds like a money-making proposition. Yeah, what are we doing here? How do you double your money? <laughs> well, you just buy a bunch of nickels. Wow. <laughs> Nominal voltages, the lead at two. And when it says two volts, that means you're going to be going between 1.75 or something around there up to 2.4, something around there. And then for our lithium ion batteries, your typical ones is 4.2 down to maybe 2.5 depending on how far and up and down you cycle these things. And that's why we have to have those DC converters, because they're not constant voltage by any means. Every battery has a different voltage, and they're varying quite a bit in their state of charge. And so it's impossible to operate a system without having some type of a DC converter to actually vary that voltage for the inverter that needs a constant DC voltage. We've been talking about nominal voltage. Nominal means like in name only. When it's just sitting there on your car, it's 12.6. It's going down towards, what, about 11 and a quarter on the low end and 14 and a half on the high end, something around there. Yeah. And it's interesting too that with airplanes, they have to be exact. And so they call it a 14 volt battery because when you're flying your plane or you're driving your car, it's charging with the alternator and it's somewhere closer to 14 volts than 12 volts. 
So they're designing their radios to be 14 volts. So you can't buy a 12 volt radio for a 12 volt airplane. It's going to be a 14 volt radio. Storage battery, usually we're talking to lead acid with a storage battery. The telecom industry. And so when you're talking about some telecom batteries, they're behind a fence. It's not as dangerous. It's not like it's in your garage or something with kids riding their bikes and skateboards around there. Yeah, the funny thing about the telecom industry getting really involved in the National Electrical Code is that they're just scared that they're going to get regulated. Right now, most telecom applications are not regulated by the National Electrical Code because they would fall under the utility exemption in 90.2 B5 of the NEC. But I think more and more they're figuring that they're going to start seeing more regulation and that's why they're pushing back on a lot of the battery stuff because they've been using batteries for literally a hundred years. And I get that. The applications we're concerned about are in people's homes and in businesses where people that are not experts in the electrical systems that we're talking about are interacting with these things day in and day out. And we want to keep those systems safe. We want to make sure they're not going to hurt anybody, that they meet the requirements. And that's why we have these new standards out there. And it's for applications that are around people that are not experts. Whereas when we're talking about telecom batteries, these things are maintained by telecom engineers and technicians that know these systems very well, have been working with them for literally decades. I'm not concerned about those systems. Do they have problems? Occasionally, and they know how to deal with them. I'm not worried about those things burning down somebody's house because they're not used in somebody's house. So that's really what we're worried about here. And that's what AHJs around the country are concerned about is the interaction of electricity. That's what the NEC is for. It's the safe use of electricity for protection of persons and property inside of a lead acid battery i got to see the inside of a lot of lead acid batteries when we had fires here in california because the thing that would last were the uh, plates so the fire would pass through the battery you could hardly see but you'd see a bunch of plates sitting on the ground and you say, oh there was a battery <laughs> so it looks kind of like that all the plates would have melted off from the fire but yeah if you can catch a battery on fire you can see what's inside it Sometimes lead acid batteries get sulfation, lead crystals build up on the plates. A lot of times that happens when you don't keep them topped off. And then you can equalize the battery up to 2.6 volts per cell. And so if you think about that, if you had a 48 volt battery bank, you're going up to 62.4 volts. So with a 48 volt battery bank, you're not going to be using 50 volt equipment because in 48 volt battery bank, that's nominal voltage. So you're going to usually be sitting there over 50 volts. And it's important to understand, we're talking a lot about lead acid, but right now there are no UL9540 lead acid batteries, so you will never see one in a house for the purpose of, in a recent installation. Now, we did a lot of lead acid batteries 20 years ago, and there are tons of lead acid systems in the Hawaiian Islands, especially in remote applications. But in the last five years, there are exactly zero lead acid batteries in residential systems because those systems, at least in the last several years, have had to follow UL 9540 since the 2018 International Residential Code hit the street. So you may see some lead acid batteries from maybe five, four or five years ago, but most everything now is lithium ion. Let's talk about that, Bill. So let's say that they run across somebody that's going to stick some, you know, really good Trojan L16 batteries in their battery backup system since it's not 9540 because they don't have any lead acids 
should they reject them or that's a really great question and i think that's why we're bringing it up here is that in like a tool shed or an accessory structure or something like that i think a lead acid battery would be fine and if the technology was sufficient for it like my outback skybox it is listed to operate a lead acid battery of any type so you can operate any lead acid battery with it the International Residential Code says you must have a UL9540 battery in a house. I would add attached garage to that if you had an attached garage. Now, there's not a ton of attached garages in Hawaii, a lot more like carports and mm -hmm. things like that. Inside the house, it would have to be 9540. Outside the house, a lead acid battery would probably be okay on a house like mounted to the exterior wall of a house i think that would be get start to get a little bit questionable and that's kind of pushing your luck so if i were building a system and i wanted to use a lead acid battery and by the way i really like lead acid batteries i may have four lithium ion batteries but i think i prefer my lead acid batteries i would certainly accept it in outbuilding like an accessory structure but not inside of a house since when? or so The 2018 IRC is where it became mm -hmm. essentially outlawed until... Now, it doesn't mean that we're outlawing lead acid. It means that it has to be 9540. And as of today, there are no lead acid 9540 systems available on the market yet. That being said, Outback has been trying to work with several certifying agencies to get a lead acid version of their skybox approved they just haven't gotten it done yet it's just really a timing thing and it doesn't mean that they can't get it done in fact the standard 1973 has been heavily revised to include a lot of new lead acid requirements in it i think we will be seeing by the end of this year we'll probably have several lead acid batteries that are ul9540 the key is ul9540 not lead acid or lithium ion so that's kind of Aaron. so as of the 2018 irc you can't do any lead acid batteries until somebody gets a lead acid battery that's UL9540. And that's in a house. And so right now, no lead acid batteries in a house. And that's why we've been dealing with it because I felt pretty strongly that lead acid is an excellent technology and we shouldn't leave it in the dust because it actually is a cheaper yeah. technology than lithium ion and is safer. Yeah, it's almost unfair that you can't do that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they can make an exception. Flooded lead acid batteries need ventilation. If you have a sealed lead acid battery, then you don't need ventilation. So even though like if you did overcharge it, it would be valve regulated, but still you don't need to have ventilation. Yeah, the ventilation requirements, both in the building code and the electrical code, are when you have a battery that off gases and explosive mixtures during normal charging. So that's maintenance-free batteries don't need ventilation. That's right. Even though they're lead acid. So that's interesting. They're very expensive batteries, the sealed batteries. And so if you actually overcharge them, it's very rare for them to explode, by the way. That's a rare occurrence. And they're very expensive. And then they basically just die and you got to replace them. They're good for boat anchors. And that's about it after that. Boat anchors are important. Their stratification, yeah. lead acid battery, one reason why it needs equalization which is actually making hydrogen called electrolysis, splitting water molecules. It makes bubbles. Hydrogen comes off the negative terminal and it will stir up the heavier acid that sinks to the bottom. And that's one reason why you do equalization. And so with the sealed battery, we're saying that's a maintenance-free battery. Um, sometimes we have gel maintenance-free or glass mat maintenance-free. And as we just learned, 
With these maintenance-free batteries, we don't need ventilation. Another way to explain a maintenance-free battery is it's maintenance-proof. You can't maintain it. Now, the only thing you can do is clean terminals and stuff like that. But there's language in Article 706 and 480 about needing to have terminals protected for regular maintenance. In regular maintenance, there is no such thing as regular maintenance with the VRLA battery. The terminals do not have to be protected. They can be in an enclosure that people can't touch normally, just like any electrical terminals. But when we open the door to that enclosure, the actual terminals do not have to be protected unless they were flooded. A flooded battery system, the terminals actually do have to be protected so that people that are maintaining the battery by watering it on a regular basis do not come in contact with the terminals. Nickel-based batteries, let's not worry too much about them because nobody's using them. Your hybrid vehicle they are. Yep, and the old <laughs> hybrid vehicle, the That's one right. that I gave away. That's right. <laughs> Other types of nickel batteries. It's kind of funny that my car has more nickel than my old car that had nickel metal hydride batteries in it because lithium ion is full of nickel. If I had a nickel for every time he said that. <laughs> if you have a Prius battery that's not doing well, you hook it up to some voltage and let her rip for a while, cook it. I was able to make my Prius battery go from 45% to 95% in three or four charge-discharge cycles. Pretty amazing. Wow. So that was just from like equalizing it. Equalizing right? it, oh. yep. Cool. Equipment. Did you know that you could make your own lead acid batteries? There's no UL for that? Yeah, why not? Just go get some lead, twist it up. It's a lot cheaper just to buy them. Also, another thing for Article 40 that's kind of weird is with under 60 volts, and I believe that would be nominal, you don't need a disconnecting means. That was new in the 2017 code. It never was intended to be that way, and that was the telecom guys getting involved. And so, and that's another reason why we made it clear that Article 480 really isn't for use with projects that are connected to solar systems you use in 706. They even put that same language in Article 706. Again, the telecom guys getting meddling with the electrical code. The 2020 code basically says that if it's smaller than one kilowatt hour, then you don't have to have a disconnecting means, but it got rid of that 60 volts, which is not a deciding factor on whether you need a disconnecting means. It makes no sense. So that kind of reminds me of doing stuff in the third world, you know, no disconnects yeah. and all that. We have like this emergency disconnect thing. And this is also in 706, sort of, where you need to have one and two family dwellings, need to have something on the outside of the building that's the disconnect for the system. Nice thing about Hawaii is that the climate is so nice that putting batteries outdoors, as long as you keep it out of the sun, is really the best place for a battery. Mounting them on the outside of the house or next to the house, things like that, is a good idea. And you don't have to worry about obviously the disconnects would be accessible at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. because when it gets down below freezing, it's tough on lithium batteries in 706.2. So the label, one and two family dwellings, all they need is a nominal battery voltage. Otherwise, you need these different things it has to do with fault current, arc flash label, and short circuits. That would make sense perhaps for a storage battery bank. But for energy storage system, you're controlled by electronics and so you don't need to deal with that because when you're controlled by electronics, you're not going to have these high short circuit currents. We're supposed to guard our live parts with storage batteries. The important thing to understand is that, yeah, usually we're in some kind of an enclosure and a lot of people get confused that if you have live parts 
inside the enclosure that's a problem and that's not the problem you close the door and you lock it or you have tools that required to close it those are not considered live parts live parts are sitting out in your neighborhood or in your living room and, and we don't have live parts with our battery systems the idea of if you're operating above 60 volts then you must guard the live parts if you're required to water the battery that's where we start getting interesting so as long as it's below 60 volts nominal therefore 48 volt batteries do not require protection of the terminals for watering but if you go over that now you're in a situation where you'll have guards on the terminals to prevent people from dropping tools and stuff like that during the maintenance operations. Nothing like dropping a wrench on a couple of battery terminals. We've got to follow the regular Article 110 for working spaces, just like we do for everything else. And there's also, especially for battery racks, one inch space between a cell container and any wall or structure on a side not requiring access for maintenance. I always remember that one just because it's on the NABSET PV installation professional certification exam and people are always looking that one up. Battery circuits over 100 volts can work with ungrounded conductors if there's ground fault detection. Thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more, go to SolarSean, that's SolarSean.com. And if you want to get the best solar engineer in the world, that's professional engineer, as in PE, as in Bill Brooks PE, you can go to Bill's website, BrookSolar.com. That's with one S, B-R-O-O-K-S-O-L-A-R.com. And if you want to find out about Sean's heat spring classes, which include Bill Brooks and many of the advanced classes, you can go to heatspring.com forward slash S-E-A-N. Or you can just get a link to that at solarshawn.com. 